the best way I know to deal with feeling misunderstood is to write and play with it, finesse it, doodle, you know. The more you let it flow out of you without trying to direct it and just allowing your unconscious to speak to you, Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Katie Dalebout. This week, I have someone who really needs no introduction, so I'm going to keep this tight. Sherry Foes is a marriage and family therapist. She's the founder of The Narrative Method and a leader in the human connection movement and creates these programs and products and experiences that bring people together using stories and creativity to help people connect deeply with themselves and each other. Her work mirrors what I hope let it out and the concept of soft stories. If you've been around here for a while, you remember soft stories. And even my book, Let It Out, which is about journaling, which came out in 2016, there is just so much about how we both see the world that connects and the way she answered the questions that I ask in the interview you're about to hear, the conversation we had, just makes so much sense to me. I I really, really like her and this conversation that we had. We cover everything from the cult of culture and what that is. We talk about how she began hosting salons and how she moved to LA in her early 20s to act. And she ended up being in a band and starting hosting these salons with two poet friends of hers and so much more. We talk about overgiving and managing that within friendships and romantic relationships. We talk about how to give a genuine apology and what that means, how to handle feeling misunderstood, how to communicate to increase understanding, and and so much more. I I just really, really like her. So, So let me give you a little bit of a backstory of how we met. I have a really good friend. His name is Micah, and he happens to be my neighbor. He moved in very close to me a couple years ago and we had met previously and it was very serendipitous that we became neighbors and we were catching up this summer we were sitting outside at this place that i like to go and he was telling me about his new job and he's like yeah i'm working for this nonprofit. it's really great he seemed really happy about it and i was like oh that's i'm so happy for you like what what is it and so he starts telling me about it and i'm probably visibly like that is so incredible and so aligned with everything that I believe and want to create in the world about bringing people together and sharing and authentically being able to be ourselves and therefore 
be honest with each other and how that shared vulnerability can bring us together and make us feel less alone, which I hope to do on this podcast. So here I am talking to the founder of that nonprofit, the person that Micah works with. And we talk about Micah a little bit more and have Sherry met Micah at the end of this episode. But here's my conversation with Sherry. I'll talk to you at the end. We're doing it. We are recording. Thank you so much for for being here, Sherry. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been eager for this moment all day. (laughs) Me too. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, uh, it is Halloween for, um, you know, us, (laughs) the people listening. It will be in the slight future. But I feel like you've had a good Halloween costume or two in the mix or do you, how do you feel about this holiday in general? What have you seen a good Halloween costume? Any thoughts? Well, you know, I, um, years ago I wrote a song called Dolly boys. Um, and there was a line every day's Halloween. I'm a novelty. Hey boys, zoom in on me. So kind of every day was dress up for me. So Halloween seemed like a real come down. Oh my God. That's so what a line. Tell tell me about writing music and your your start as a as a musician. What was that time in your life like around that song? <laughs> or well beyond yeah, that song? <laughs> yeah, right around there. Um I I really had a very prolific period, but I, I had no formal training. In high school, I wanted to sing, I wanted to be in bands. But um, it was very rare that a girl would have that opportunity. And so it was just sort of tucked inside somewhere. And I pursued what was really natural to me uh, when I went to college, which is comedy. And then I eventually came back uh, to that dream of writing music. And I was in a lot of bands and um, performing live and all that, all in L.A. many years ago in that other century. <laughs> well, so you grew up in New Jersey and you came here when you were 20, I think. Is that right? Correct. Kind of on a on a whim and to to act. So was that around the same time the singing you were a real entertainment triple threat at that time like singing uh, as well as acting? No, that was some years later. Um when I I was um I was kind of the star of my school at a New Jersey State College. And I was doing summer stuff, playing Alice in Wonderland, playing Alice. And um, some people came in the sewing room with a clipboard, these women wearing blazers and uh, what are they called? Weegins, all those kinds of normal clothes that I never had. Anyway, um, I soon learned that they were from a CBS film in progress. And they were looking to cast people um, from our program. And I did not get called. So I showed up on the set at four o'clock in the morning because, you know, I'd seen The Star is Born. And I ran up to the director and I said, I'm a real actor and all these other people are just regular people. Please give me a chance. And he said, get on the bus. And my job was my first role. It was amazing. I sat on a bus that was going 40 miles an hour. And so one of those windows might have been me. Uh, But despite my big splash, I loved every second of being on that set. And a guy gave me his card 
Uh, it said A period, D period. I had no idea what that meant. Of course, it means assistant director. And he said, well, you know, if you're ever in Hollywood, so boom, I quit school. And uh, I I went to Hollywood. I met with the guy. I figured, you know, he's not going to get me a starring role, but probably a cameo. So we had lunch. He didn't put the moves on me, which I only appreciated uh, years later in retrospect, but he could not get me a job. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, but I've come all the way here, me and 5 million other people that particular day. But anyway, so that was my start in L.A. And uh, two weeks later, I got an office job and supported myself during the day and did shows at night. That was my life. So at that time, your, you know, means to an end job at an office, and then you have to really manage your energy to be able to perform and, you know, hit all of your notes creatively that weren't being met in the office job that was supporting you financially. So how did you take care of yourself during that time? And did the performing feed you? Well, first of all, that was before self-care was invented. So I don't think I ever thought about how I was taking care of myself. But I will say that there were times where I was just too burnt out. Because the other thing is, picture this, if you will. Some years later, when I got into music, I was in bands and I had a salon. And every week, we had to send out invitations, meaning every week you had to type a label and every, you know you could print them out. But Every single one had to go into the mailbox. So it was so labor intensive that sometimes by the time I got to my show, I, you know, I realized I really hadn't thoroughly rehearsed and I would be winging it. And uh, anyway, improvisation is part of my thing. And I don't know if that was natural or (laughs) of happenstance, but um, that's a good question. It's, I think it's hard for people who are trying to do, you know, trying to support their work as an artist. And then, of course, you're not really taken so seriously if you have a straight job. So all of those factors um, and the fact that I was um, a girl or a woman uh, and, um, you know, those those were challenging times. And it was really challenging because of where I had begun, which is in a violent household where I was reminded every day that, you know, I was a piece of shit. And, you know, on one hand, you defy that. But on another hand, like all the negative messages everyone receives from the culture, whether it's from advertising or an institution, the criminal justice system, your family, your peers, everybody gets negative messages. And when you get them enough, it's very hard to stop that pattern in your head. It's like somebody puts it into you and then your unconscious does the rest. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to, you know, spend the next however many years you had that imprint and then you become aware of that imprint and then you try to reprogram that for as as much as you can and then, you know, help other people to do that as 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 you're doing. You I feel like so many of those skills and the resilience and the you know managing your your energy and even improvisational skills are so adaptive and make you 
so great at what you do now, facilitating groups and and as a practitioner and as a friend in person, I think. And you know, you mentioned earlier comedy was your what you really wanted to do or what came to you naturally. And so talk about that a little bit because I only know you a little bit, but what I do know, and the I hope this is the beginning of of much more and getting to know you and what I've heard from our our mutual friend, I really like, I really loved, dare I say. And it stuck with me, even meeting you and having an incredible Zoom with you one time. And I think and then now, you know, familiarizing myself with your your history and your catalog of work, I can see, you know, sort of the threads of of where the sherry that I'm, you know, coming to know and love came from. So, you know, when did you see the the beginnings of, you know, who you are and and will become, especially, you know, related to comedy and like just genuinely how funny you are. That's what I was trying to say. I, I noticed that like we were doing bits like this first yeah, time we got onto the call. <laughs> I just felt like I was playing with an old friend, you know, you're Same. organic. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think if I were to really think about it, I was always funny and I learned, I could change my father's mood if I made him laugh sometimes. So it also became a tool and you know, maybe when I was younger, it was more defensive than it is now. But I always had um, a depth that I wasn't particularly trying to hide. It's just that, you know, like everybody, it takes time before you meet your people and they get you. And so I think everything that I'm, you know, sort of talking about now and, and everything that is the undergirding of the narrative method was based on, you know, the, the things I needed to learn and that, you know, over the years I've discovered are um, pretty universal in our culture. It wasn't particular to my upbringing as much as it is, especially nowadays, what I call the cult of culture, which is just the nonstop pounding from tech and social media and advertising. And as I said earlier, as well as all of your own personal influences and these things that shape us because they teach us from the time that we're young, that we're not good enough. So there's virtually no seven-year-old kid who can't tell you what's wrong with them. And that's kind of heartbreaking, you know, because those things are based on, you know, societal prescriptive, absurd, you know, qualities that no one can achieve. Nobody needs to be perfect. Nobody needs to be impermeable. Those aren't human qualities. And yet we're set up to believe that if not the prettiest, the smartest, the tallest, the whitest, the skinniest, the blah, 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 you know, that there is just increasing pressure. And the more successful you become, the more relentless all that is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so intense and heartbreaking, especially when you think about how young this stuff comes in. We would talk about this a lot in turn. It's, it's true in terms of all of those that you just listed, but especially in with body image and teens and, and even younger kids, like just hearing how quickly that comes in. I mean, I guess I experienced that and I'm sure you did too. And we all do. And, you know, standards of beauty have existed for millennia, but it's kind of wild to see how, you know, we're just 
we're just people in these bodies and we make things mean different things, but it's, it's wild how that can really affect our ability to connect with each other and ourselves based on how we feel about ourselves. And something that you brought up just now, I wrote down a, a quote of yours that I'm, I'm going to read and I'm hoping you can unpack because it really hit me hard <laughs> and I, I really liked it. And it's so connected to the ethos of let it out of, of this show. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I came up with this concept that I call soft stories, which is, you know, I believe that when we tell something that you wouldn't necessarily usually tell to someone else that is in some way vulnerable or intimate, it makes us feel more connected and less alone and more apt to share with each other and, and find our, our humanness within all of this. But you ha- I, I think the, the sort of missing piece with that is that you have to... There's a level of confidence and a level of self-esteem and a level of safety that has to be present for us to even be able to do that. And, and you speak about this so articulately. And a, a therapist a, a couple of years ago on the show spoke about confidence and self-esteem. And, and one of the things that really helps us to have those things is who we surround ourselves with and being around people who we feel like we can be comfortable with. And you're, this quote I'm about to read really that was eye-opening to me it sounds so simple but when that that person said that to me i was like oh that's my problem you know is i feel like i'm performing for everybody and and i need to be able to feel comfortable with with people in my daily life and this is this is what you said you know to to this effect so you said we cannot thrive unless we have meaningful connections unless we have meaningful connections unless we have people who get us and people who can see us for who we are, despite our flaws, who we can be open with and not have to second guess everything, not have to tiptoe. And that means everything. Because when you're upset or on the floor crying or you can't get out of bed or whatever it is that you're doing, you're not going to want to go to someone unless you're feeling comfortable. So can you unpack that a little bit and talk about the importance of feeling comfortable with who you're around? Definitely. Well, first of all, you know, there's nothing as lonely as having the sense that nobody gets you. But one of the reasons that that can persist is because it's a vicious cycle. We're also afraid to open up because in the past you were slammed or you were laughed at or or whatever it was. You were shamed, maybe. But the magic that happens when someone shares their vulnerability is... For me, anyway, it's almost impossible to not love someone if they're being open and honest. Because how do you not relate? Somebody says, I feel insecure. Well, I feel insecure. I know what that is. But when people kind of talk above their issues for the purpose of like promoting themselves or telling what what they would like to be seen about themselves... I certainly understand, you know, that drive. Nobody likes to put their uh, flaws out on the table for everyone to tisk tisk about. But on the other hand, if I tell you that, you know, I still feel the same insecurities I felt, you know, when I first got here when I, to Los Angeles when I was twenty years old, um, 
I think that I'm fascinated by it. And it doesn't hurt me today to say that, but there would have been a time where I, I wouldn't have known what to do with that moment between sharing something vulnerable and a person responding. So I think that what we see, at least in our salons, is that when someone is given the huge gift of being fully listened to, witnessed, without feedback, without criticism, just with a, the appreciation of, of a mother, you know, a mother who just like whatever you came up with is, is fascinating to her or him. And if you provide that witnessing ear to someone else, you are giving them the time of day. You are giving them an experience of hearing themselves without interruption, without someone else's input. And the more that happens for us, the more we start to take ourselves seriously. And taking yourself seriously is the first step, whether it's to becoming an artist or a a fully developed human being. How can we, if we don't take ourselves seriously? And then how can we begin to take ourselves seriously when we haven't been treated respectfully, that's a massive leap, you know? And so mixed in with the confidence, at least for me, was also, you know, the defensiveness. Well, you know, screw you. If I, you know, I, if I wasn't going to be the best, I'd be the worst and I'd be the baddest. And, you know, it's retrospectively, it's kind of sad, <laughs> but I get it, you know, and we're all still that vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think if the opposite of that feeling of comfort and that feeling of being able to express yourself fully as you are currently, the opposite, I guess, is being misunderstood or putting on some sort of uh, inauthentic shell or mask to to try to show up as what you think someone wants, which of course we can never really know. And then that's sort of this positive feedback loop of doom. But I think feeling misunderstood is, is for me, I'll speak from the eyes, one of the the worst feelings. So how how do you manage that? Or how have you what sort of advice have you given yourself or others about either preventing that as much as possible? But of course it's still can happen even with the the best of communication strategies, and so, yeah, maybe your greatest lesson on um, on feeling misunderstood. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I think the best way I know to deal with feeling misunderstood is to write and. The thing about writing, especially if you're by yourself, you have that experience of not being interrupted and just play with it, finesse it, doodle, you know, the more you let it flow out of you without trying to direct it and just allowing your unconscious to speak to you, because trying to direct it in a way is is another defense. You know, it's not just that I want to please you. I want you to think I am what I want to appear to be. Um, but that's never going to be as good as showing you my vulnerability. 
it takes a it takes a lot to get to that point and realize that like to show you my vulnerability at this point in my life costs me nothing. It's just it's like I can show you my vulnerability as a gift to show you, you know, that it's okay to be where we are in in a state of becoming. We're not that great. We're not God, and that's a relief. You know, we don't have to be great. We just have to be good enough. And that's um, that's a concept that I really embrace from Donald Winnicott, who was um, a child psychologist and pediatrician, said in speaking to mothers that in order for your child to thrive, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. And I really love that idea. And I've taken it to heart in all areas. It's not to say that, you know, I I don't get, you know, perfectionistic or worried that something's not good enough. But it's sort of an overarching, soothing idea that I can use um, if I see that I'm going down a rabbit hole. And it's just like, maybe there's a time limit, or maybe this thing just has to wrap up for whatever reason. And to accept whatever those limitations may be and you know do your best and move on yeah that's so good about using journaling and and writing and and storytelling that you know i think for for me it's often I'll, i'll walk away from an interaction with someone or a phone call or an interview and i'll instantly wish it had gone extremely differently or just a little bit differently or i you know just oh man i should have said this there like you know and if you put someone on a pedestal or if you have a crush on someone or whatever it's like usually intensified like a cartoon character but often my knee jerk reaction is when i feel that way to want to take action like to want to correct it or I'm craving redemption in some way, which is really control. Like I'm wanting to control how I'm perceived. And, you know, and if I, when I have done that, when I have sent a text or followed up, or it's never gone well, it usually at, at best is just not even clocked by the other person or at worst, like makes it worse, you know? And what does always make me feel better to your point is journaling like letting it out to to myself i wrote a whole book about that or telling it to someone safe you know it kind of dissipates when i can do that or i tell the story and i laugh about it or i can make meaning of it to myself or like all right that was i can't believe that happened but you know i have a funny story about it or it it helps you to process it and and move on and not want to you know remain in that wanting to control it Definitely. And, and, you know, where you first went with this, which is, you know, like, if you're attracted to somebody, it's really easy in that situation to completely disconnect from yourself and try and be how you think they will like you. And every time you disconnect from yourself, you know, it's obvious. So inevitably, if that were me, you know, I would then blurt something out or say something I don't want to say or or whatever, because that disconnection from yourself makes it impossible to think. You're just, you know, sort of performative. And 
when we see ourselves doing these things, I think it's so important. It's don't beat yourself up. Appreciate and appreciate in other people that when people are doing that stuff, people don't like wake up to be a dick today. You know, people just like are struggling because it's hard to be a person and it's hard to feel good enough in this ridiculous culture. So the more you can let yourself off the hook the way you would anybody else, um, the more you'll start developing this trusting what I call a listening relationship with yourself. Mm. Can you say more about what that means? A listening relationship with yourself? So as you begin to take yourself more seriously, like everybody always has a sense of, you know, I matter. I, I want certain things in my life. I have dreams. But then, you know, as you're told, who do you think you are? Or you can't do that. Or maybe you fail or, or whatever those, uh, however those messages come to you, you do start to disconnect from yourself because, you know, unconsciously that's not working. So you unconsciously try and be how it seems you should be. But when you come back to yourself through writing or any other art form or meaningful creative sense of, you know, self-expression, that's when you start dialoguing with yourself. That's when it's not just, shit, why did I do that? I'm such a jerk. It's more like, shit, why did I do that? And then some other parts is, yeah, but you did that because you were responding to this thing that had happened a long time ago. And it's still a knee-jerk reaction. Well, what am I supposed to do about it? Well, one thing you can do is when that happens, put your hand on your heart and reconnect with yourself. Um, And so in this kind of a way, you can begin to have a nurturing relationship with yourself as though you were your good parent. And truth is, we are. No biological parent knows what you want and need the way you do yourself. And so rather than fantasizing that somebody will read our mind and know what we want and provide it in the exact way we want it, it's kind of cool to identify that and try to provide it for yourself. Yeah, it's it's such a useful strategy. I think there's there's a particular person where I I was noticing this pattern through a lot of journaling about it and a, a lot of voice noting friends about the situation where I just couldn't every time I would walk away and be like what happened like how did I for whatever reason I had the way that this dynamic is I I I really struggled to be myself around this this person and it just it always it's very alluring to interact with them because I never it's like a gamble like I never know what I'm gonna get and I, if, if when it's good it's good you know the high it makes the highs higher and the lows lower but I'm I really had to learn to to do that but I that language is so much better and and and, and would be more more useful to have and I think you know even and there's a a work situation that feels kind of similar to that that I'm in right now where I've been collaborating with a friend and we both want the best for each other and it's really going to be a great situation and and her and I are completely on the same page with that but we're in the midst of the figuring out how then what that's going to look like and she 
she said this great line to me. She's like, I feel like there's been a little bit of static and that's exactly what it was. And, and I had to, you know, sometimes you can feel like far from the situation of like, what, what am I even saying? I'm just like, like what's really happening here. And I think the, the best way for me to do that while I'm a reliable narrator has been to write about it or talk about it to someone else, which is two things that are, you know, pillars of your, your work and pillars of the narrative method. And I really just don't think there's any other way to, to figure that out and, and understand our own patterning and each other without, you know, doing that in our own way on our own first. I totally agree. And, you know, it's not even that like you do it once and then you're good. Uh, This process of living is like, Fail, 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 succeed. Fail, 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 fail. But, you know, if you understand that the things that are sort of your issues or your crosses to bear or or things that each person has, some that are universal and some that may be unique to their situation. And when you get triggered, it's really easy to think, see, I've never gotten any better. I still suck. I still do the, you know, I still feel blah, blah, blah. But it's important to remember that all of these patterns are cyclical. So each time you come around to it, it's with greater depth of understanding, even though that feeling may be the same. Um, And understanding that can, can make the difference between being in a funk or a depression for a long time or else being able to recognize, oh, yeah, I'm back at this point in the cycle. But man, look at what I have now under my belt. Now I understand this. Now my behavior has shifted a little bit. But you have to be your own cheerleader. Put it this way. Once you take in a negative thought, and if you think of like, think of the most benign thing, like everybody learns from commercials that, you know, you have BO, that's why you have to wear deodorant. So, you know, except for people who probably have some sort of hormonal issue with that, for for the most part, it's it's a non-issue, but we are made to worry about it. So if you guess how many times you heard that subliminally or otherwise in advertising from the time you were a kid, let's just make up 400. I don't know. Let's just say 400. How many times did you combat that with the opposite or an affirmation, which is, you know, I smell fine. I smell good, whatever that might be. This is an example that I'm purposely using because I don't think it's so evocative. But we cannot combat the negative messages that we have then interjected as as negative self-talk. We cannot combat it without giving our minds the opposite sentence. So when you reassure yourself that, no, I'm not a procrastinator. I just procrastinated because I felt stuck and I really, you know, was at a loss for for how to proceed. Clarifying these kinds of things make all the difference. Because if we did affirmations all day long, we still couldn't combat all of the negativity that we're getting. Yeah. Oh, so that's so good. And it relates to, you know, how you talk about gratitude as well. Like when, you know, we're going to remember when something bad happens, we don't have to worry about that, that we're all set there. It's, it's the good things that 
you know, we really have to focus on. Can you unpack that part of yeah. the pillar? Radical gratitude. So the idea is that if you have a figurative string around your finger and always remember that it's very easy to move on from a close call. How many times were you almost hit by a car and walked away fine and didn't celebrate that night? How can you not celebrate? How can you not celebrate every small win? Every time that you open a cabinet and something almost falls on your head and doesn't, or you almost press send and thank God you don't because you don't want them to read it in that in that way that you wrote it. Whatever, whatever those things are, it could be realizing a thing of beauty that's right in front of you that you were taking for granted. When you acknowledge every small thing of beauty, every close call and every moment of good fortune, you change your mind and you change your mind's habits and expectations and assumptions. This is of all the core concepts in the narrative method. This is the one that has truly changed my life more than anything else because it's living in a way where you are awake. Mm. And when you're awake, you cannot help but say, look, there's some horrible, hideous things in the world. But in every moment, you are alive and there is beauty everywhere. Yeah. That's rather gratitude. I love that so much. So, this is, you know, where you are now, right? And and that has drastically impacted your your life, but I I want to go back to the 80s and 90s when you were leading salons. What what was that time like for you? And you're still leading salons now that look a little bit different, but tell us about, you know, you you mentioned a bit about acting and then your music career coming after that, but take us back to the early days of the first iteration of salons. Well, um, the first iteration was in 1985. I had two partners, Doug Knott and Gavin Dillard, both of whom were poets. And we just got this idea that there was this awesome place on La Brea Avenue. Um, and it was a restaurant. And upstairs, they had just this coolest space in the world, uh, kind of dark, rich colors dripping with pearls and a bar and hors d'oeuvres and tables and sofas. And it was just the coolest ambiance. And it started at 10 or 11 at night on weekends and it went forever. And the idea was that you come there, you could even come by yourself because people felt comfortable and you would talk to strangers, uh, hang out. And then every once in a while, there would be a quick performance for about 15 minutes. It could be a poet, it could be a dancer, it could be an artist, it could be music, acting, anything. And then you would go back to the living room vibe. And in doing this, we had all of these things happening in the room that were disarming so that people would forget to be nervous. For example, somebody walking around like with the the cigarette kind of holder that they have in, you know, in the old days, I guess, at nightclubs and stuff. And um, and somebody else, we set them up at a table and it said hand jobs, $1. And they were just giving hand massages. But just whatever you could do to make people laugh is really the opposite. And um, 
it's in concert with making people go deep. Because the more you can laugh, the more fear you let go. And the more fear you let go, the more you realize, as I was saying earlier, that like now costs me nothing to tell you what I'm vulnerable about. You know, I may feel ashamed of certain things, but I'm not ashamed to share it. And so when you can create an ambiance like that, people connect with themselves more deeply and they connect with each other. And that was this image that I've had for all those years about continuing salons in another way. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, I was already in LA for 10 years when, when, no, not maybe not quite 10 years, but I was in LA for, yeah, a long time already when we had started the salon. And it was really my favorite format because it was everything I loved. It was before I became a therapist. So I loved facilitating and, um, hosting and introducing awesome artists to the world. It's, I mean, that, those are like all the things I love as well. And really like why I do do this show and love, you know, I, I did so many live events and groups and facilitating too. I think there's such a, there's such a joy. I think people like us get from bringing together people and hosting. And you've also mentioned the great benefits of group therapy and it was so illuminating and honestly just fun to hear about some of the early seeds of the narrative method and how each puzzle piece came together from you know what you just shared your experience with group therapy and then you know getting into narrative medicine and becoming a, a therapist which I want to hear about too but may- maybe you know tell everyone else first about where the other puzzle piece of, of group therapy and the the unique benefits of that came into your existence. Well, when I was in high school, I had cut a hundred days in my sophomore year. And I, I just got to a point because of my home life, I, I just stopped learning. I couldn't I couldn't study it and I didn't care. And that's kind of, I became so apathetic. And that's when I got to the point of what I said earlier. It's like, if I, if I couldn't be the best, I'd be the worst. And, and, and I took pride in that. But at some point I was uh, noticed by a guidance counselor and they suggested that I go to this free uh, group therapy for kids my age. And it was the first time in my life that I found kids who were as introspective as me. And the profound camaraderie of the first time you meet people that are like speaking your language. And what made me fall in love with the group process, it's partly because I I just really, I love the power of groups, period. I love the excitement that people can bounce back and forth and build upon but the thing about a group as opposed to one-on-one is that in therapy or in just a, a regular conversation, if you're sharing with one person and they're really feeling you, that's a great experience. But when you're sharing, especially if it's vulnerable with a group and you're saying something like, you know, yeah, I, I just, this is something people say in our groups all the time. Oh, I'm such a procrastinator. And then, you know, maybe you're looking downward and your eyes go up and you realize 30 people are nodding. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So if you get it, 
if you are also a procrastinator, maybe it's not about me in particular. Maybe there's a bigger cause. Maybe my navel doesn't have all of these answers. And in my opinion, it's got to do with the cultural impact of um, these messages that we get. And um, so that as though it were a bad thing, if you get stuck, why should you be able to sit down and write for hours and hours nonstop and just flow? If you're having a conversation with yourself, you need to go back and forth a bit. But we've been made to think that not flowing constantly is a bad thing. So that is one example of the power of groups. And I just love to see people say, you know, somebody said last night or what is today? I guess it was Sunday morning. I never thought I could write. And she just started crying and she's like, I I can't believe it. And, you know, we get these, we make these assumptions based on things that don't really add up. You know, somebody said this, another person said that, I figured this. And even though I was seven years old when I thought of that, I'm carrying that assumption forward. So time to upgrade. Mm, Yeah, gosh, I love that. And then the the maybe not last but another puzzle piece that i learned from preparing for this was about narrative medicine so i i wasn't familiar with narrative medicine before this and so i would love to to hear about what that is and and how that contributed to the narrative method so um in 2010 um my kid was about to, uh, I guess, start high school. And um, it was in the winter, we were saying goodbye to my cousins, who I'm so close with, who live in New York, we had just gone on vacation with them. And out of nowhere, my husband says, uh, we should move to New York, they live in New York. And I said, yes, my kid said yes. And then a couple months later, my house was on a truck. You know, there's something about when you can, and if you have the privilege to be able to make such a decision like that, I might add, uh, that there is really something quite amazing about throwing all the knowns up in the air and just going for something in your gut. And so we moved to New York. I was already a therapist, and um, I had been a therapist for a while. I opened a practice, I took all the exams, but I still had time. And it was then that I noticed this master's program at Columbia University in a field called narrative medicine. The program was started by Rita Sharon, who was a physician and um, and also a PhD in literature. And the idea was um, to use literature as a way to teach empathy to doctors through identifying with the characters. So a lot of doctors are, you know, just basically nonfiction readers, science type people, and that's not uncommon. And then we've also sort of gotten used to this idea that, well, who cares about bedside manner? We just want the best doctor. But it turns out there's tons of research showing that In the old days, when a doctor came to your house with a little black bag that essentially had nothing in it, 
you got better because of the connection and the eye contact and the comfort that this was a doctor and the doctor said you're going to be okay. So using um, research like this and the power of sharing stories and empathy and rooting the whole thing in social justice and who has the right to speak for a patient and many, many other fields that wound up being part of this study, philosophy, uh, history, literature, of course, and humanities. And it was something that we were told on the first day, this is a new field, there's no career path. But I quickly realized, I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is going to be my new work. And so I decided that I didn't want to do something that involved having students study um, and come back, that I was into immediate experiences. So I just created, uh, I just started doing these um salons and workshops and had people come to my place in New York or I went to organizations there and just started doing it and it evolved out of the doing. Wow. That's so cool. So you kind of moved to New York on this whim. Now you're you're back in LA and the narrative method is you know better than ever. How how did you end up back here? When did you end up back here? And and what was that? Do you feel like the spatial? I mean, obviously, you connected with Columbia University and and learned things there that you might not have here. But was being in a different space and taking that leap something that led you to be able to create something? Yes, yes, yes. First of all, um, I grew up in New Jersey and spent a lot of time in the city. If you have family there, so it it was. Um, it wasn't going to a strange place per se, but I had never lived there. But, you know, it's kind of like this listening relationship I was talking about that when you start letting yourself express yourself without beating yourself up, without interruption, just like, oh, let's see what I come up with here. You start taking yourself more seriously and and doing something like I did was... It's basically betting on myself and my family. Like, yeah, we can do this. And so my kid went to high school there, but we only really went for those three years. So we came back, my husband and I came back to LA and uh, he went to college. Um, And so it was, you know, meant to be a three-year experiment, but who would have guessed that it it would have been so life-changing. And it, it really does make, make one wonder about what other instantaneous decisions or leaps or risks can you challenge yourself with that will help you go deeper with yourself, with other people, with your work. There's something about betting on yourself that is a a giant payoff. Even if the thing that you thought it was going to be doesn't turn out in that way. It's a reminder to your unconscious that, you know, I can survive. I'll try this. I'll try that, you know, rather than being, you know, just tied to what you know. Um, And again, I I can't deny you have to have the resources to be able to throw everything up in the air or else be flat broke. One or the other. Yeah. Or like just 
have the threshold for uncertainty to do that in whatever way is safe, you know, like what it may be like something I'm trying to do is I, I love my neighborhood and I love being here. It's very familiar to me since I've moved oppositely, like from New York to here. And I'm trying to go to different neighborhoods and LA is so big. And I, you know, have my car and I should explore and see other things that aren't, that might be a, dead end or might, you know, not looking at it as a waste of time. Like that's such a silly thing. And I have moved and done those, those big things, but I think even that can, I mean, this is so obvious, but can switch a perspective or just have you, I don't know, see something in a different way. Yeah, I, I agree. And also just commenting on, you said it's such a silly thing. It's really not. And that's what I find so much fascination in. And I, it's kind of like what I hope people will do. So like we say things like that as though it were trivial. Well, it's not trivial in any way. And it's also not trivial if like you kind of want to do that and you don't. Maybe it's not that you're lazy or a procrastinator. Maybe it's that the traffic is so effing insane that it would take you an hour and a half to go to this place that sounded interesting and you just don't have it in you right now, you know? Yeah. So self-compassion really goes a long way. But uh, I agree with your drive to do that. I think it's really cool. Yeah. It will reminds me of something that I heard you say and I really liked you you play Scrabble a bunch and you learned a, a pretty useful life lesson from the game yeah. about having you know infinite having infinite possibilities in how we see situations. Absolutely. Can you talk about that? Yes. So if you keep in mind that I had completely given up by the time I was in high school and I was really taught to give up. Uh, you know, because I was no good, I'd never be anything, and blah, 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 blah. So when I started playing Scrabble uh, years ago, but we, we've developed this thing now where we play with two double boards, which is 400 tiles. So if you're a Scrabble player, you know there's one Z, one X, one Q, and those are really the high-value letters. Well, in our case, there's four of each. Just that. Just think about like your unconscious takes things as analogies rather than literally. That's why your dreams are symbols. Your unconscious doesn't have time to spell out everything. It's just, this is this, this is the feeling, you know? So what I started to realize was there would be a time when I would look at the letters in my rack and be sure that, no, there there was no other word I could make. And then I would continue to move them around, even when I knew there was no other word. And my mind would be blown. After I knew there were no more possibilities, there they were. Constantly. That impacted me. It has changed me to realize like how, how much more easily I was ready even if it's not thought of as quitting, like I thought I had considered all the angles, not at all. So I really learned that when you think you've looked at everything, keep trying. There are more things there 
I mean, I guess you could say than meet the eye. But it's it's to have that happen over and over and over. It just changed my perspective about what is possible. And I think I I it's changed my work ethic a little bit. Yeah. I found that so comforting. I mean, I think exactly. the, the and you have a bigger sample size the older you get. Like that's, you know, there when we talk, I think when we talk about how some things get get easier with age, I think a big part of that is that with experience, we have a bigger sample size of like your first breakup is so much more horrific than your, you know, 12th because you don't know during that one that you'll exactly. ever not feel that way. <laughs> exactly. How do you know you're going to live? How do you know there will be a tomorrow? How can you possibly believe that you won't care about that person, much less even remember their name? Yeah. It's like, oh, I forget that guy. I, I, you know, vaguely, yeah, he had a blue shirt. I don't know. It's just amazing. And, and that is... That is the big gift of getting older is to be able to contrast and compare as a way to self-soothe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another thing you said in a different interview that stuck with me was about how we have this shorthand with ourselves when, and you've mentioned this several times, even today of, of how we talk to ourselves and how that impacts, you know, our reality, but also our, relationships with others can you say what you mean about that and how what that shorthand is and how we develop it um i don't think we consciously develop it i think in if we could fathom mathematically how many ideas images experiences conclusions facts have have gone into and remain in some form in your brain. I mean, it's like a huge neural network. It's bigger than any computer and it's got an infinite imagination. Well, you're not going to have time to go through it in your life. So it's kind of like years ago, there's something called microfish. I can't believe I just thought of it, but it's, it's not so different from um, storing things on any computer now. Like you don't, see you know you don't see the things on your hard drive but they're there and they're there in you know it's not like they're all actually printed out although you could print it out it's stored in some other kind of way uh and i don't know what the comparable term would be except for you know like you know, neurons or, or neurotransmitters or whatever. So all of these experiences and associations mix up based on what's been evoked uh, recently. And so because of that, you never know what combinations are possible. That's why when you're doing creative work to try and let yourself go more than you try and harness it because there's always time to harness but it's in the letting go that you'll really get far-reaching ideas um so what was the question no you 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 answered it just how we you know our self-talk and how we you know we might beat ourselves up in a way that we're not even realizing that we're doing because we kind of 
think in the shorthand. Exactly. So like break it down, talk to yourself, ask yourself, and then like, why did I get that idea? So I will share with you that a couple of weeks ago, I came up with this phrase. I don't know what made me think of it. And the phrase was inferiority complex. And when it hit me, it was as though I had buried this uh, decades ago because it was so fraught and so shameful. And there was something about conjuring those words that was really empowering. It was like, oh, Oh, that's what it is, you know? And I realized the myriad ways I defended my uh, inferiority complex, partly partly because I did feel confident. You know, there, nobody's all one thing or another. But when you can get to the bottom of language with yourself, because our own ways of hearing and associating are absolutely unique to the way and order in which we experience things and breaking it down and deconstructing it is like, that's the best gift you can give yourself. And also hopefully it leads to letting yourself off the hook. You're not a loser. You just are, um, you know, you suffered this misunderstanding or you suffered somebody naming something when you were too young to push back. Yeah. Yeah, the, I, I like I mentioned before. We, I listened to a, like a plethora of of Sherry this morning of, from all different years and eras, and I'm really happy about this. All of them were great, but this this one that I'm thinking of right now. You spoke about this with someone, and you explained the connection between this exact piece of the the pie about self-talk and neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but it's something we've been talking a, a bit more about here. And I would love to to hear your your thoughts on that if you can remember. I'm not sure exactly what I was saying about self-talk and neurodiversity, but neurodiversity is such a great example of what we're told and how damning it can be. So there are lots of people, uh, including physicians, we're just talking about physicians, some physicians who may, you know, not tend to be interested in stories, literature, as much as they're interested in facts. Well, that may be in part because their brains think much more uh, logically than emotionally. Maybe, you know, I'm just throwing this out. I don't really like to pathologize, but and I'm not going to, but you know, you can imagine uh, several quote unquote disorders that could be associated with that behavior. But if you don't try and make it convenient for billing, for, you know, for doctors and therapists to bill so that they can give you a code of what's wrong with you, uh, but rather if things were written in prose uh, describing you, um, there are absolutely diseases, there are absolutely mental disorders that are serious, but when it comes to the common um, majority of things that, you know, so many people suffer because they're cultural dysfunctions, not our own, to be able to separate from the name-calling and the limitations you know, I don't know if we would have an internet if we didn't have a lot of people uh, 
how some people would refer to them as on the spectrum. So regardless of, of what your tendencies are, that's really different from having a personality disorder. People don't know that and they bandy around these names and they become curse words. The way one person integrates a tendency is going to look different than the way another person does anyway. So whether you're neurodiverse uh, whether you're non-binary, uh, whatever your religion is and, and, you know, all of the other things that can categorize or explain us, they all fall short because it's not our story if we don't tell it. With the self-talk and the, you know, ways that people put ourselves into categories and other people put us into categories other than therapy and and writing are there any sort of cognitive tools that you could leave us with or or give that might be helpful in terms of taking a negative thinking spiral and either flipping it or or catching it gosh yes there are there are a lot of things to start from a place of radical gratitude. And you can very quickly center yourself, no matter where you are in public or wherever, um, by just putting your hand either on your heart or on your wrist on a pressure point so that you can feel either your pulse or your heart beating and use that as a way to connect with yourself. And if you can, Close your eyes and just breathe until your breathing becomes slower and more steady. And then with that hand on your heart and you're pushing to feel the heart. So it's a double process. Your hand is the you who's taken care of everything. Like you said earlier, the 31 years, you don't know how you did it. You figured it out, man good for you, right? So that hand is your dominant hand. It figured everything out from the time you were an infant. Didn't know how, doesn't know how it's going to figure out the next thing, but it will. And from the inside is the vulnerability. And when the two connect and borrow from each other, the strength borrows the tears, the vulnerability borrows the strength, then you are more whole, then you are more in balance. And so from that state where your vulnerability and your strength are connected through your heartbeat or your pulse, you can just allow yourself to feel grateful for something, anything in this moment, and allow yourself to really revel in it. And what a gift it is to be alive and to feel that So I would say that that gratitude and connecting with yourself will always bring you back to a place of more clarity and calm. Mm, I love that. Okay. I'm going to ask the rest as rapid fire, mostly because I have a bunch that I want to ask and we don't have that much time. (laughs) So just, you know, take your time, but I'll, we'll see, we'll see what we get. So How does the work that we do on ourselves impact how we communicate and connect with other people? Great question. Um, Because the more you understand yourself, the more fearless you are about understanding your pain and fear and vulnerability, 
the more you can connect to other people from that very real place. And that's what makes us love each other. Not our production, mm. but that we can identify with what each other's going through or has gone through. Mm, yeah, so good. You you said also in another interview that when we clarify something or when we tell a story to someone else, we feel better. And it's not because they fixed something or gave us a, a solution, but it still has that sort of cathartic impact on us. Can you talk about why that might be? Well, first of all, there's some cathartic impact of getting to just say your whole story without somebody interrupting. But but this or no, you said, you know, no, let me finish. So you get to kind of hear your whole thought. And from there, you may make adjustments. But that's a very uh, good feeling of completion. And it's like and, voice texting really allows for that. Exactly, I've noticed. Exactly. And then the when the other person listens as a witness and doesn't try and fix you or, or even compliment you, no feedback, then you have created this holy um, moment between two human beings accepting each other for their humanity. It's not what you said. It's not because it's good. It's bad. It's none of that. It's just being real together. Mm. Yeah. Well, sort of related. We talked about, you know, how uncomfortable it feels to feel misunderstood. What are some communication strategies or things to keep in mind to prevent that, to help people to understand you and, and under most importantly, help us to understand other people? Yeah. So the 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 first thing to do when you're listening to someone else is to put yourself aside. And if you know you're going to have an important conversation, I would say to jot down anything that's on your mind or something you don't want to forget so that your head is clear. But when you put aside what you have to worry about, um, your beliefs, your past experience, and you just let yourself be open and not knowing then you're really in a position to empathize from the other person's perspective. And if you can get their story the way they see it, you will understand them and they will love you. <laughs> it's just, it's a fantastic, that's a healthy loop. Mm, yeah. Well, related, what's your, what's your greatest lesson on listening? I guess just that when you put yourself aside to be present for someone else, you're also liberated from your own head and your own thoughts and your own self-consciousness and all that stuff. So it's almost like I always say volunteering cures depression. Whatever you do to love someone else, to be present for someone else, and to be liberated from your own head is like going on a roller coaster in a good way. It's fun. And so the best, best way to listen is to be present for and with the other person and let yourself go on hold. Mm. Okay. And then related, what about greatest lesson on talking? To understand that there is, there are profound impacts from the way we speak, the rhythm, the tone, the vibe the accent, the body language, a, a look 
of the eye, which can take a split second. And you might walk away from that meeting and say, I don't know what it is. I just kind of don't like that person. You could have slowed it down. You would have known exactly what it is. So it's appreciating the many, many aspects that come together in communication, most of which are invisible and, you know, really rely on people being honest with themselves and each other. Mm, Yeah. This is a question I've asked since the beginning of, of doing this show. And I'm just always so curious how people spend their days. So what is your day like? How much do you sleep? What is your work schedule like? What are your mornings like? Are there non-negotiables or a few things you do in the morning that help set how your day is going to go? Good question. Um, I don't think every day is necessarily following the same thing, but I do I do tend to wake up early. Um, I don't sleep a huge amount. Um, and I kind of wake up with um, like sort of a prayer to be as good as I can be and to grow and to love each person every time. And that is kind of my motto. Um, I, I do a lot of writing. Um, I have to constantly be organizing myself because I have so many different projects going simultaneously. Um, but you know, other than than attending to what I have on my calendar and in front of me, um, my routine really can change. If it's warm, I try and swim. You know, if it's not, I try and exercise in a way that'll support my back. That uh, I don't know that I have the most interesting answer for that. No, I thought that was great. Is uh, do you have any things you do to decompress or to wind down at the at the end of a day? Well, I do have something, and this is actually one of the concepts of the narrative method as well. It's a tool called Wonderland. And it's something I discovered years ago when I was pregnant and I could not sleep on my side, um, or obviously my stomach. And so I gathered lots of pillows and I would balance perfectly so that my legs were um, both supported in the same exact way. My arms were supported in the same way. I couldn't feel any weight on my body. So I was like a floating head of ideas. And that is something that I love to do. I call it Wonderland. It doesn't, you know, you can do it as a way of dreaming up uh, something complex or as an entertainment to just go to the movies in your head. Mm. But to allow yourself to wander um, imaginatively um, is not wasting time. It's really, it's dreaming new ideas and a better world. That's so cool. I, and you were Alice in Alice in Wonderland, bringing this back to the very beginning. Look, the queen's sugar tart. (laughs) Yeah. The, Believe it or not, the, my my blog when this that started this whole operation was called the Wellness Wonderland. <laughs> I was wow. real real into Alice and that world, <laughs> that Wonderland. Um, wow. Well, I don't even know if you 
remember this, but it stuck with me because it was an honor in a lifetime, honor of the the honor of my lifetime. When you said on our call, you were like, you should play me in the movie. It was just like this offhanded joke. And I'll never forget it. It was really an honor. Not that I'm an actor of of, of any t- type, but you, you know, it's it now is making me think of of movies and acting and in in an offhanded comment and in something I read or listened to of yours today, you said something related to movies and you just said very quickly and it you know you didn't even like go further into this because the conversation went in a different direction, but you said that you like movies about relationships and. I do as well. And so I have a couple movie related questions, but do you have any like what are some of your favorites and and what do you what do you mean by that? Well, I love small movies that go nowhere. I don't care about action. I hate action movies. I hate same <laughs> football and sports that are just about uh reiterating how big someone's dick is. Um I think the world would be very benefited if we didn't spend billions of dollars a year on faux war. Um, so I do feel strongly about that. Okay. Well, I love, there's a, a French movie years ago called Mon Uncle d'Amérique, My American Uncle. Um, I like, you know, it, it's kind of about, like about class and uh, power. And I just really, really, I'm, sort of drawing a blank on exact on movies, but just deep, introspective, humanistic journeys where people come to know themselves and and each other. Because, you know, love is the whole story. Without it, we don't survive. And without it being, you know, appreciated that Every person, we're from the same source. One world, man, it's too late for divisions of relate of religions and politics and all the other things that can easily separate us. The big story is just love. Mm, and so good. Well, you know, I think I, I watched this movie this weekend that that I love, and Sofia Coppola is one of my favorite. Oh. And I watched Lost in Translation the other night. Uh-huh. And I there's this one one line that, that Bill Mer- Murray says, I think Scarlett Johansson is like, does it get easier? And he answers by saying, the more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. And I feel like that's kind of a theme of, you know, what we were talking about, at least about experience and aging and just like slowing down, you know? Yes, I, I completely agree. It's really just about coping. It's not that bad stuff doesn't happen, but it, you gave a perfect example. You know, like if something has happened to you 12 times already, you know, there's another day. You hate it, but you know, you'll survive. And that's everything. How do we get ourselves to a place that's calm enough to remember, okay, there will be a tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, okay, this is another sort of movie-related question, and this might be a dead end to put you on the spot with, but you know the movie Sliding Glass Doors? I don't know it. Well, well, then maybe maybe we'll skip this, but basically it's, I, I was going to ask if you have a moment where 
your life could have gone in two directions. Like if one thing yes. had been different, um, if you have a sliding doors moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I often wonder like if I hadn't quit college and I finished college and then came out here, but you know, I think those kinds of um, thought experiments are extremely fun and can be really fruitful. I can't really think of one thing in particular right now. Well, you can if if it comes to you in your next wonderland, you can you can let me know when we get okay. a coffee sometime. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I want I want to talk about apologizing real quick before we wrap up. You've said that a genuine apology cannot be contingent upon being forgiven. Can you unpack that and maybe say what does make a genuine apology? A genuine apology is an act of humility from me to you. And if I want to apologize, I can only have the goal of seeking to have you feel fully heard. And if I, if part of that is you're telling me that I need to do something to make amends or to prove to you or whatever, then I have to hear that and, you know, either abide by it or, uh, you know, in other words, not avoid it. So, you know, an apology is not like, oh my God, I'm sorry I didn't come by, but uh, my mother got hit by a car. Well, that's not a, even a good apology. It, it just stick with the truth, which is for the other person, which is, I'm sorry I didn't come by. And now allow yourself to imagine what it was like for them. I imagine it messed up your evening because I know that you had to be somewhere in 40 minutes and you weren't going to be able to get there if you didn't have a ride. And then that person might say, yeah, well, that's true. And I wasn't able to make it. And I bet also then the people that you were going to visit were disappointed and you had to deal with that. The point is that the more you allow yourself to imagine and the more you invite the person, tell me more, tell me more. I really want to understand this. If you allow someone to fully release what their frustration or hurt was, then eventually they will say, ah, but that's okay because blah, blah, blah. Because we make ourselves better. When we're heard, we heal. When we're heard, we can move through it. If somebody apologizes and just says, look, I'm really sorry, but a lot of stuff happened that night, you don't feel better. It's not because the slam was so terrible. It's because we need our perspective to be known if we can let something go. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so good. I, I've i been having a interesting experience of of sort of seeing this pattern in a couple of friends of mine that kind of relates to this. Basically just last night I was listening, catching up on some, some messages from friends from the day. And I saw this, this pattern and essentially overgiving. like one, one friend had taken her, her neighbors were on vacation, just the parents. And so she, the grandparents were there and she was taking the kids to school every day last week and really went above and beyond. And, and then 
not only was this the these there's more favors but that's just like one um not only was that not even acknowledged then like a plan for halloween was was canceled and then she didn't have time to make a new plan and you know it's just like the and she's like i get it but god why i feel so foolish like what was i even and i know why she sent that message to me because she knows that i can relate to that sort of obviously my my uh situation is wasn't the same but like boy oh boy have i done a, a similar thing like hoping for a different outcome right like giving in hopes of receiving sort of and it's not even necessarily calculated it's just it, it's not even about wanting to receive it's more of just i wanted to be acknowledged like i wanted to be thanked like and then she ran into this friend when they returned and like no thank, like no, like nothing, like no thank you, no I'm like just nothing. And then another friend sent me a similar scenario, different circumstances. And so you know, I guess it, I was trying to give advice and I'm out of my depth because, like, I mean, I can empathize and just say. And then what I said was, I'm just so sorry that happens. I know how that feels. It sucks. And you know, it's a matter of like I'm trying to manage my expectations and you know not not make something about me, but I don't know. And, and I think it relates to the apology thing too, because it's, yeah, it's really just wanting to like get to the being things being better. And sometimes you have to stay in the uncomfortable, but do you have any thoughts on the, the overgiving yes, thing? Totally. So um, first of all, last week I was um, in a parking lot and, and a car started backing up and I punched the car and then I was walking to the store and I was thinking to myself, you know, oh my God, you know, I've done this. This stuff really happens. And I saw that the person was still in the car. And the fact that they didn't say they're, they were sorry infuriated me. And it was, I had already talked my way through it and realized, you know, obviously it wasn't malicious. It's something that I could do. Uh, anybody could do by mistake. But because they wouldn't apologize, I couldn't let it go. I mean, you know, I, I didn't see them again and there was nothing to be done. But whether it's giving too much or just needing to be acknowledged, you don't need much. I, I know you didn't try to kill me, but just care, care, you know, put your hands yeah. together in a prayer position and shake them. Oh, my God, I'm sorry. No worries. No problem. Or just taking care of somebody to such an extent and they, you know, like you're saying, they completely ignore that. It's, it's, it's a challenge. And these are good examples of, on one hand, you may be telling yourself, why are you making such a big deal? But on the other hand, you need to be sympathetic with yourself and find out why. And the reason is because you know what? That's a, a values issue. If I almost kill somebody, I really like to say I'm sorry. <laughs> Doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but we, we have this need for completion. We have the need to be seen, especially when things are important. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about, about feeling understood and like seeking to understand others and and that we you know if 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 something if someone has to cancel or something like it's not that i want someone to feel bad or to feel pity but i want them to understand my perspective and that 
cathar- that gives me the catharsis that helps me to be exactly. able to bounce and move back, move on. It costs you something. Just, yeah. just don't take me for granted, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of times people don't apologize because they don't want to be shamed. But that's kind of like hanging on to your vulnerability because you don't want to be shamed. It's the most counterintuitive thought, unless you're not in a safe place, in which case, of course, don't share. But, you know, when you share that, and it's very hard to say to the person, you know, I feel like I was very generous and you didn't respond in kind. That doesn't feel so good to say. However, if you say that, you might have a better conversation where that person doesn't have to read your mind and they can you know, make a correction. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I really did appreciate it. And I should have said something or, you know, wherever it goes. Yeah, absolutely. You have to know who is safe to be real with and who is not. Yeah. Well, related, what's, what's your greatest lesson on friendship? Um, That sometimes they finish and, Mm. and whether it's a friendship or a marriage you don't have to make the whole thing a failure. It hurts me when people say, you know, I got divorced and it didn't work out. Well, it worked out for 10 years, right? Yeah. Um, friendship is holy and it's it should be mutually satisfying and you should be on the same wavelength about things that are most important or at least be able to respect each other's wavelength, you know? Yeah. Well, similarly, the greatest lesson on romantic relationships. Mm. That what you think you need really changes. And, you know, when I was young, the only thing that interested me were, you know, was that somebody was attractive to me and cool or talented or whatever that stuff might be. And now all I care about is that someone is good and kind. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just kind of shocking, like that you can be so old before you start learning thing one, you know, and just every time I learn thing one, which is almost every day, it's like, how did I get to this point without <laughs> realizing this? It's humbling and, and fascinating. I know. And then also, like, yeah, and also sort of there's like a grief to it of like, God, wouldn't it have been great if I didn't yes. know it before? The grief to it, I'm so glad you, you brought that up because it's really brilliant and it's universal. And somebody just the other day realized something and it was basically that, you know, her family was not safe. She didn't feel good with them. They didn't like her. They didn't respect her. And she could let go. She didn't have to keep trying. And her overarching feeling wasn't like, yay, I can be off the hook. It was like, I'm so depressed that I've lost all this time. Mm. It's hard not to feel that, but but rather than staying there, just to be grateful that you figured it out ever. Yeah. And you're still alive. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, okay. I can't thank you enough for, for all the time. Dana, our mutual friend, has submitted a couple of questions and we don't have time for all of them, but maybe I can ask you two of them real real quick. She okay. says, I heard a story about you and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Is it true? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yes. When I was in um, 
a group called Royd Rogers and the Whirling Butt Cherries. Um, we were a co-ed group, uh, very wild. And um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers played their first gig opening for us at the Kit Kat Club on Hollywood, on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. It was a strip club and um, it was a great night. So that is true. And um, then we imploded and they kept going. <laughs> well, you kept going too. You just went in a different direction. Exactly. And that's a good reminder. And that's, yeah. you know, something that's a brill- You should do, do something with that idea. Really. That's so smart. It's like survival. It's like, it's not just a matter of if something works out or if it fails or if it should be, shouldn't. It's what happens. Life is complex. There are so many influences that are beyond our control. I like that to just, you know, see where it takes you. Totally. Um, there is one thing I would like to share that um, uh, Micah asked me to say. So it, it's just yeah. really by way of explaining the narrative method. So, so there is an urgent and universal epidemic of loneliness, which people have acknowledged. Japan has a cabinet of loneliness. London has. Yep. Loneliness czar in London. And the U.S. Surgeon General has reported this very serious, pervasive epidemic. So based on that, we have developed a human connection community, which we call the narrative method. And it is a movement and a model of what I call narrative awe, and awe standing for awareness, wonder, empathy. It's about acceptance without judgment of yourself or others, creative expression without fear, and human connection without the limits of the cult of culture or past trauma, what family has put upon you or institutions, governments, all of those impacts, all of the blocks that get in the way as we try to express ourselves and connect meaningfully with others. And it's amazing to see how powerful it is with people reporting real transformation and beginning to trust their voice through feeling safe with each other and having fun. Mm, I love it so much. I love hearing about the narrative method. I love the words that that Micah has written and shared with me about it. I love being able to tell this community about it because it is so incredibly aligned with soft stories and letting them out and my work and what I've tried to create here that this couldn't like it, it's it's kind of goofy to me. Like all I can do is laugh at how perfect it is. When Micah told me about his new job and told me about you, I it was it was like stupid how perfect of a fit it is and how much I love what you're doing. So thank you so much for being here. And I am just so grateful to know you and and be able to collaborate with you in this way and always. And then funnily enough, the the other question from Dana that I wanted to ask has to do with Micah. And this is the question I've been most excited to ask. And it's like odd that I don't actually know this, but Dana's question was like phrased perfectly for me. It says, how did you meet my neighbor, Micah? Oh, all right. Well, we had um, hired this guy um, to be able to 
temporarily lead us as we were restructuring. And it was through him that uh, he introduced us to Micah because we were having um, an all-day strategy meeting and Micah was going to help us with that. And I instantly loved him. And then we went out to breakfast. It was like, no, this person is my person. And I have to tell you, I feel like he is my creative soulmate. He is perfect for me, for what we're doing, as is Dana. It's just the power of having attracted people of this caliber who get it and know how to move it forward with me. It's gigantic. I love Aww. it. I'm so grateful. And I know they feel the same way about you. And and I think, yeah, collaboration is so special and delicate and beautiful and can create beyond what we can do on our own. And I'm so I'm so happy to have gotten to meet Dana through through you. And I'm, you know, similarly to, to have Micah in my life and and be, you know, part of this in the limited way that I am is is such an honor. So thank you so much, Sherry, for being here. And as you know, the the name of the show is Let It Out. So when I offer that to you, you know, letting it out, is there anything you wanted to share that you didn't get to? Did I, you know, squeeze out all of your juice or is there anything else that, that you wanted to say? The more you squeeze, the more it makes. So <laughs> it's like love. You can't, you can't use it up. No, I think I would just like to say to everyone who's listening, let it out, let it go. Don't judge it. Let it fascinate you. Mm, so good. Well, we always end letting out a deep breath together. So will you do that with me? Absolutely. Okay. Inhale. Let it out. Ah. Okay. That was my conversation with Sherry. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end and sign up for some salons like we've shared here. They occur five days a week. There are so many great ones. Conversation salons, writing salons. This organization means so much to me. And I'm going to be at a couple this week, at least one, maybe more. We'll put the times right into the show notes. But feel free to just go to their website, sign up for a salon that works for you. And you do it from the comfort of your own home on Zoom. Show up as you are and connect with other people all over the world. I'm so grateful to Micah for introducing me to Sherry. I'm so grateful to Sherry for doing this podcast. And I'm so grateful to you for listening. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, thank you so much. It means so much. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. Just send it on to them. That'd be so great. And if you've been listening to this show for a while and you want to help, you can leave a review if you want, or you can rate it on Spotify. It it all adds up. It really helps so I can keep doing it. And also, I just want to say, if you listened to last week's episode with Zach, let me know. Let us know if you listened. I loved that one so much and I would love to know what you think. And then the previous week's episode, my mashup of two spiraling episodes. And at the end, I gave this idea about something that I wanted to do potentially. And I said, if you would be into that, to comment on Instagram to specific emojis. (laughs) And a bunch of you did, which I was shocked and odd, and maybe I'll actually do it. So if you listen to that episode and you 
know what I'm talking about. Thank you. And if you did it and you want to know, go back and listen to that one. And just thank you for all the feedback about that episode. Talk about vulnerability and, and sharing authentically. So again, I'm, I'm so happy you're here. And I'm going to, I used to do this thing where at the end of the episode, after I do this long winded outro, I would say two emojis or I would have the guest pick an emoji and I would have you comment it on my Instagram or let it out to Instagram. My friend Sasha would text it to me usually and it would just let me know that you listened all the way to the end and and that there are people listening all the way to the end and it made me so happy. So I'm going to go back to doing that. I think I thought it was silly or I don't know. I got embarrassed for some reason trying to be cool, destroyed my life. But we're back. We're back doing this. So what should the emoji be today? Hmm. Why not do the sunshine? (laughs) Because that's the opposite of being cool, right? So if you're listening right now, comment the sun on my Instagram, on Let It Out's Instagram. I'm very behind on posting episodes on Let It Out. I don't even want to talk about it. I'll figure it out. It's a lot to do one person social media, much less also a podcast person, a podcast entities uh social media but i'll get back to it anyway comment a son if you're still listening to this ramble right now thank you so much for being here thank you to sherry and sign up for salons i'll see you there supporting the narrative method is supporting yourself and each other and helping the world feel a little bit more connected and helping us all feel a little bit less alone which is something that i am just so in awe of and grateful for. Okay. Talk to you next week. Love you. Bye-bye.